Welcome to Ballistic Radio. Join us as we explore the subtlety and nuance inside the world of personal protection. Listen as industry experts, thought leaders, and pioneers investigate why it depends is the answer of champions. Ballistic Radio, critical thought over empty rhetoric. Ballistic Radio is brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance. Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdinance.com. And now, here's your host, John Johnston. Welcome to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdinance.com. I'm your host, John Johnson. Remember, you can always listen to past shows at BallisticRadio.com. Get the latest behind-the-scenes info, arguments, photos, videos. Uh, there's stuff at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. I'm super pleased to welcome on to today's show uh, from KR Training, Carl Wren. Hey, Carl. Good morning. Good morning. I, I appreciate you carving out some time. I know you've got a busy day ahead of you, but I am very much looking forward to what we are going to talk about today. Um, if you don't mind, for folks that maybe haven't caught your past appearances on the show or uh, just don't know who you are, if you could talk a little bit about yourself, then we'll get right at it. Oh, you know, I hate to do that. I'm so shy. <laughs> I know. I know. That is a, you are not a performer at all, sir. Right. Uh, I've been in the training business about 32 years now, have my own private training facility down in Texas. Uh, I've got about 3000 hours of formal training. I've been a, a presenter at almost all the range master tactical conferences, uh, USPSA grandmaster for science analyst, um, court certified expert witness, and relevant to what we're doing today, I've been doing force-on-force training for about 23 years. Nice. And that actually does segue very nicely into what we're going to talk about, which is um, the role of force-on-force, number one. So what is force-on-force? Why is it helpful? But also, two, maybe how we could get regular, everyday Earth people, as Daryl Bulky would put it, um, interested in you know, I guess putting themselves through that. Cool. So I guess the first place to start is what is force on force? Well, traditionally, back in the old days, it was purely shooting guns at each other. Uh, Law enforcement instructors, law enforcement agencies often did it practicing things like traffic stops, right? And you'd have a revolver with blanks or a revolver with a primer and wax bullets and they would run little scenarios, and that would help you practice your decisions, your use of force. What do I say? What do I do? Where do I stand? How do I react to this, that, and the other thing? Over time, you know, we got FATS machines and video simulators, and that's still around, and there's some great technology for that. And then things evolved. Uh, uh, Ken Murray and some other folks invented the simunition conversion kits, and that allowed semi-auto pistols to fire essentially paintballs. And then airsoft guns came along. And so there's a lot of training that was focused on that sort of thing, gun versus gun or gun in various situations. Uh, Then Craig Douglas came along and, well, I should say, let me back up a step. John Benner and Marty Hayes and Greg Hamilton and John Holshin in the 90s did a lot of force-on-force training as well. And the National Tactical Invitational had force-on-force training, probably the most complex thing ever created. It was a one-hour immersion in in the village where you actually had tasks. You had to go to the bank. You had to go buy groceries. And there were criminals lurking in the village that may or may not interact with you. 
and so over time, what's happened, then Craig Douglas came along, I didn't mean to leave him out, and expanded it to really integrating physical fighting, wrestling, grappling, all of the physical contact stuff in with the ammunition gun. So now, by modern standards, force-on-force training really involves every kind of use of force decision in an integrated way. And my definition is that it includes everything from the image-based decisional drill flashcard work to red gun work, to laser gun work, to the Virtra simulator, to uh, the scenarios I run mostly, which is uh, inert pepper spray and firearm and harsh word interaction, to what Craig does, which is full on, you know, punching, kicking, grappling, wrestling on the ground, plus guns. So the, the spectrum is broader than it used to be. How's that for the history of force on force training in five minutes or less? That's That's pretty awesome. I guess as I'm listening to all of this, my thought is, as I think of force on force, and if we were to just boil it down to at its base level, what is it? Would you say, would it be fair to say that force on force is our will against opposition? Yeah, like, that's a good That's a good way because you're working against a live opponent. Their objectives are totally opposite from yours. Theirs are to uh, attack you or attack someone near you in some way, perform some kind of crime, and your job is either to get out of there, avoid it, prevent it, or stop it. Perfect. And you sort of mentioned it, but force-on-force training is not a new concept. It's been something that from at least the early part of the 20th century uh, was seen to be important by at least some people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because what people figured out, those that had had been in combat in particular, is that shooting paper targets, you know, turning stationary, I'm standing in one spot, and if I'm slow, it doesn't matter, and if I don't move, it doesn't matter. Uh, When you work with live opponents, all that stuff matters a lot, and you'd rather learn that in a situation where you're not going to die as a result of making those mistakes. Right. And so I think the great deal of, of effort was put in to scenario based training, particularly like in the 70s after the officer for survival movement sort of blossomed, that uh, the force on force training became more important for law enforcement and even uh, even later down the road for armed citizens. That uh, Claude Werner, his great book on the mistakes gun owners make, most of the errors are judgment errors. They are not shooting errors. It's not that my draw wasn't fast enough or that I missed my shot. It's that I didn't draw my gun when I should have, or I did draw my gun and I used it when I shouldn't have. And you, you're just not going to develop that skill set working with paper targets on, on a live fire range. What's interesting to me about that is, and you you sort of touched on it, but so you hold several grandmaster uh, rankings inside of several disciplines, I, I believe. And so no one could really say that you don't know how to shoot well or quickly. Um, you know, additionally, I at least look good on Instagram every once in a while. So, <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm okay-ish, right? I can, I can certainly make the gun go bang very quickly. And, you know, so you said a thing that sometimes upsets people, but essentially where people really run into trouble, it's rarely their technical shooting ability, but it's 
their judgment or the the tactics that they select or how they what do you mind expanding on that just a little bit because i i think it's sort of important and i agree with it so not at all the the most recent part of my life is i've been doing more expert witness work and multiple cases in the last couple of years and the common thread is the thing that got them into trouble was either what they said or when they made the decision to use the gun right the problem wasn't that they that they failed to get the gun out or that they shot badly when they shot it was what they did before and in certain cases what they did after right in the in most classes the best you're going to get for post shooting is you scan you look around but it's not the looking around part that gets people in trouble it's what you say to the nice uniform people that show up that ask lots of questions mm-hmm. right and something that's been integrated into force on force training over time is the idea that you need to give a statement you can not only practice the fighting part but in like some of my scenarios and i'm not the first one to do this right that afterward okay you're standing there and officer smith and officer jones are standing there and what do you say to them what do you say to your lawyer what do you put in your statement and those things may not be exactly the same right you may have limited on the scene brief statement to the officers what you say to your lawyer in confidence is well here's what i really remember about what happened and here's what's going through my head and then the third part of that is well how do we condense that down into a statement that we provide that's consistent with the evidence that makes it clear that what I did was legally justifiable? Right. Uh, I'm dealing with a case right now where the gentleman gave five hours of interview time to the law enforcement officers two days after the incident, and uh, he did not have a lawyer present, and his statements were pretty unfiltered, and that's making a, that's a challenge. For his case, because now we have all these things that he said that are on the record that uh, some of them don't sound that good. Right. So there's right. Uh, there's challenges there. And, and so practicing that, I think, is as important as even working with the live opponents and good force on force training. You're going to introduce some of that element as well. Well, and to be clear to anyone listening, you know, the purpose of something like that is to not cherry pick after the fact why you made the decision that you did so much as the time to be processing whatever emotions you feel after you shot someone is probably not sitting across from the investigators uh, talking through your thoughts or feelings or whatever, right? Yeah, they're not your lawyer and they're not your friend. They're trying to figure out what happened. And uh, like I said, there's there's ways to say things that are truthful and factual, but even in the language and the verbs that you use, uh, that can that can portray uh, provide some influence on their perception of what you're saying and what you mean. Right, right, and that that can be, as, as you noted, amazingly important after the fact. I have some more questions for you, and I'm really excited for the rest of the episode to get to talk about this, but we do have to go to break real quick. So right now we're talking with Carl Wren from KR Training. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio. 
Radio brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdinance.com. This segment brought to you by Wilson Combat. Wilson Combat makers of the finest custom 1911s and scatterguns since 1977. A legacy of quality, innovation, and service. Learn more about their firearms and accessories, as well as the X9 series of firearms which offers discriminating shooters 1911 match-grade accuracy, superior ergonomics and concealability with modern service pistol capacity as well as reliability at wilsoncombat.com. So we're talking with Carl Wren from KR Training about force on force and sort of what that is and how it works and why it's important. And before the break, Carl, you were sort of discussing uh, one aspect of what's included in force on force, or at least good force on force which is the post incident and as you noted oftentimes a post incident procedure at most it's taught as like sort of a you know some form of a 360 um degree scan uh you know are there more bad guys coming what what have you but there's a lot more to it to that i guess what what i'd like to sort of dive into a little bit as someone that's been involved in force on force for a very long time and who has conducted a lot of force on force training, what's your idea of what good force on force training should include or shouldn't include, or, you know, does it depend? Um, It comes in levels. We've, we've really become a big fan of the image-based decisional drills program that Brian and Shelly Hill put together. It is an excellent program. And what we do now is I have a 40 hour challenge coin program that's covers a lot of ground. And one of the courses in there is called personal tactics skills. And it's the intro to this sort of stuff. So we start out with the IBDD material and here's your seven cards and you start learning to make decisions with limited time and limited information. Right. So that's a great starting point. And the IBDD stuff, you don't need $5,000 worth of special gear. Right. You can do that with a projector and a bunch of cards, you know, for the, uh, the pictures from their program and the cards. And that's a that's a starting point. Right. The next thing beyond that is red guns, cert pistols, cool fire guns, stuff that doesn't shoot projectiles. You can do scenarios with that in any building, anywhere, uh, without worrying about damaging anything, without worrying about. Uh, damaging the the cars or the walls or anything. So you can do very realistic, what I think of as force-on-force scenario training, simply working with things that don't shoot projectiles. And honestly, I think there's no point in adding the projectiles into the system until people are doing the right things with the laser guns or the cool fire guns or whatever you've got that doesn't require helmets and gloves and neck protectors and all the other stuff. A lot of people that are doing training now could add that to their program without a lot of physical investment in special facilities. But the skills to do that are different from, you know, no matter how good you are at handgun shooting, you can be great at standing on the line, looking at someone's hands, diagnosing their trigger press and their grip and watching their eyes and and teaching them transitions and all those things. Uh, that doesn't mean you're good at scripting scenarios. That doesn't mean you're good at conducting that kind of training. And so it's a different skill set. And you're going to laugh when I say this, but I really do believe this is true. And I believe it helped me a lot 
in my development. It, during my high school nerd years, I was a big Dungeons and Dragons guy. Yep. And the interactive role playing, that style of improv theater, improv uh, interaction, and particularly when you're the dungeon master and you're trying to come up with what is the what is the situation you're going to put all these other people in? Well, you know, it's kind of like the same skill when you're writing a scenario for five people in a 7-Eleven. Uh, the difference is you don't have miniatures and dice. You have people. And yeah. uh, so there's a little bit of improv theater and there's a little bit of role playing games in there that those skills actually transfer over and are surprisingly useful when you want to be a force on force instructor. I literally told a student within the last 60 days who was asking me about, hey, how do I get better at, you know, managing unknown contacts, um, you know, Craig's whole muck thing, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, I literally told them because much like me, they are also uh, a nerd, but had not played Dungeons and Dragons, um, oddly. And I'm like, you should really find a D&D game and sort of get into that. And they're like, really? I'm like, yes. And so it just, I'm, I'm kind of tickled pink that, uh, that you said that because it sounds a lot better coming from you than it would from me. I think. <laughs> so, but uh, right. so, yeah. I mean, playing paintball, playing airsoft, doing that kind of thing. That's, you know, that's another kind of cross training for force on force, just getting used to, pointing something at another person and pulling the trigger and being shot at um, while paintball and airsoft games are not, you're not doing self-defense stuff, right? There's a lot more shooting. There's a lot more aggression. And the whole point of it is to find people to shoot at. Right. Um, But that's another, you know, it's just like boxing or BJJ. You get used to hitting and being hit grapple grappling. You get used to those things. And like John Hearn said, you know, it's, um, it's not no longer becomes a novel stimulus, right? Right. If somebody is firing at you, even if it's, you know, plastic BBs or whatever, at least that's uh, as close as you can get to training yourself or providing what is it? Ayub calls it stress inoculation, mm-hmm. right? All of this, all of these different pieces of the puzzle give you stress inoculation. We're like, Oh, I've seen this. I've seen this movie. I know what this looks like. Right. And so uh, the mistake I think some people make, is they want to go straight from nothing to full-on scenarios with the full safety gear and you know AR rifles blazing away at each other um, with the you know with sim rounds. Well, sim rounds are expensive, mm-hmm. and uh, that's can be a costly course, and you need a lot of safety gear for that. And I think that most of the things that people need to learn can be learned at the lower level. And really, once you get to the full-on force-on-force with the safety gear and everything, that really becomes sort of like the test. That's like going to a match, right? You've done your homework, and now you're ready. Okay, now we're going to turn it up a little bit. And, uh, you know, now now I'm going to risk a little more physical injury and put myself under more stress. But you want to be ready for that. You don't want to just dive in. Right. You want to you want to put your toe in the water gradually. OK, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for this. I'm ready for this. That's that's the way we run it in our program. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the force on force classes, we take the people that have the least experience and I make them go first because they get the easiest scenarios. And the people that have more experience get harder scenarios. And the idea, because 
I do stuff differently. Traditional force on force training is you're all locked in a room and we come grab one person and that one person goes through a scenario and they don't and nobody else sees it and they go back in the room and they don't talk about it. Well, the downside is in a 10 person class, then nine people are learning nothing and it takes you know hours to get everybody through the scenarios. That's good for law enforcement training where the goal is to verify that that person does everything they're supposed to do by policy. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a, and there's a use for that. If you're going to send somebody out on the street and they encounter a certain type of situation, you would like for them to do everything they're supposed to do to stay within policy and to survive the incident. Um, but for a group class in a four or an eight or a 16 hour class, I hate that much downtime. So what I do is every scenario is different. Everybody sees every scenario. And we talk about every scenario after it happens so that people learn more. There's more life lessons and more, uh, more growth, I think. And particularly when we get into the scenarios where it's not just you and your house by yourself, but it's you and the 7-Eleven with five other people. And there's a lot more chaos that occurs at that point. And uh, that provides a level of realism that's absent from the you and the one role player or the two role players in the simpler structured scenario. Right. And so I think people need all of those things. They need the you, you by yourself with one intruder, you with another person in the house with one intruder, you know, now we have like two versus two and then, then add in, okay, now you're in your office and there's three coworkers who are unarmed that start running down the hallway and are between you and the threat. You know, you can, you can always just make it more and more complicated uh, without doing sort of the stereotypical, here's five ninjas fast roping down from the helicopter with their ARs, you know, and here you are in your living room. Uh, that's that's kind of what everybody's afraid of, I think, when they do force on force and why the regular Earth people won't come. Because yeah. they they know they're going to be crushed and they don't want to be crushed. And you have to sort of ease them into it. And and explain no, we're going to prepare you so that when you finally when we finally go hot, that it's uh, you should have the tools you need to do well. And if you didn't, then we shouldn't have put you in there. Well, and I think that speaks to a larger issue, not necessarily well, um, probably not amongst any of the instructors that we spend any amount of time with. But I think it does speak to a larger issue as far as some of the lack of understanding about any number of what is actually being taught or should be taught, um, you know, amongst students and, and, you know, some instructors, as far as what does this thing teach? Like what piece of this does this teach? And I'm a, I'm a giant fan of breaking things down into the smallest piece that I can break them down into and I can break stuff down pretty small. Uh, and then, you know, work, like you said, working on one piece at a time, then increasing the complexity, uh, working. All right. Now this thing is going to work on the, you know, three pieces that we all worked on one at a time, sort of along that lines. And as, as you sort of pointed out, the difference between, you know, the, the full contact or as close to full contact as we can get, um, assessment really versus this is a learning experience and we're all going to learn inside of it. And they're both learning experiences, but it's sort of a a different, as you noted, a different level. Um, I've got more questions for you, but we are up to the next break. 
so when, when we get back, more from Carl Wren from Carrot Training. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdinance.com. This segment also brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance. Big Tech's Ordinance is the best place for you to find all of your everyday care needs at the absolute best prices. Maybe you need all the candela from Modlite at the lowest price? No problem. Spend too much time alone in your room, and now you need an optic on your pistol? Well, Big Tech's Ordinance has those, and they don't judge. Glock accessories? Yes, fast. Cheap shipping, 100% hassle-free returns, all that and more. And best of all, Big Tech's Ordinance has Ike. He's a good man and thorough. I like Ike. Everybody likes Ike. And you'll like Ike, too. Visit BigTechsOrdinance.com today and find out what happens when every customer is a friend, not just an order. So we're talking with Carl Wren from KR Training about Force on Force. And, and you were sort of discussing the, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, levels of force on force and sort of what those are achieving. And you brought up something that I think is very interesting and I'd like to talk more about it. And that's the idea that, you know, the everyday earth people think they're going to be crushed in force on force training and they don't want to be crushed. And we could go a couple of different directions here and I'll let you choose since you have uh, graciously taken time out of your day to talk to us. But I, I feel like there's a couple of things going on there. And, and one of the things that we could talk about is whether or not just students in general or human beings in general view failure inside of training the way I think they should uh, view it. You know, it's like, hey, I'm here to learn. And that's not necessarily dependent on an outcome so much as dependent on what I take away from it. So that's one thing we could get into. Um, and the other thing that we could get into that I'd be curious to get your take on, uh, again, your choice, though, is, you know, what does it mean to be crushed in force on force training? Um, so it is up to you, sir, whichever direction you would like to go with this, or if you could amalgamate them together, uh, that is, that is fine by me too. I'm rolling up my sleeves. So that's, that's a bit of a challenge. Yep. Let's start with this back when I was a young lad and I was very enthusiastic about USPSA competition, I would try to get other people that I knew that were gun owners to come out and shoot matches. And they're like, well, I don't want to go shoot a match. I'm not good enough. I'm going to do terrible. And I totally understood that, right? And and I, uh, that's where I got into the idea that well, practice is like homework, and the match is like the tests. And so I totally agree with them. I said, yes, if you want to go shoot a match, let's go do some practicing, and let me prepare you for what you're going to be doing on match day. And that was very much the beginnings of my my activities as a trainer was here. Let's go to the range. Let me teach you how to draw. Let me teach you how to move with a gun safely from one position to another. Uh, let's work on, you know, hitting these targets and hitting them in the right spot and getting good points and all that. And it's the same thing with the force on force. The other thing we're fighting against though, and, and I'm going to put a shameless plug in for my book right now. And that is the strategies and standards for defensive pistol, which John Dobb and I wrote. And there's a whole long discussion of this in the book. And if you want signed copies, you can get them from krtraining.com. 
And uh, you can also get it from Amazon in ebook format and uh, print copies. But there's a whole long discussion if this sort of thing interests anybody out there. But people like to shoot, right? The popular classes are, I've got my AR-15 and I want to go run my AR-15. Uh, and I'm like, okay, that's great. Let's do that. Let's have fun shooting our AR. But okay, if you're at dinner tonight, what do you have with you? Well, I don't even carry a full-size gun. I've got this blah, blah, blah in my pocket. I'm like, well, maybe we should do some training with that. Well, that's hard, you know, and that's not as much fun. So everybody wants to have their battle belt and their full-size gun, or they want to have their AR, because those things are fun, and shooting is fun, and there's nothing wrong with shooting being fun, right? Uh, where I, over my time in the training business, have began to explore things like, okay, you're good with your your gamer gun on your USPSA rig or your gun good with your open carried gun on your battle belt. But then what are you carrying from concealment and what can you do with that? Right. And that requires, I get way more people come into classes with their open carry gamer fun range day rigs. than I do coming to my small gun class where we're practicing drawing from a pocket or drawing from a, you know, a backpack or, you know, whatever deep carry, concealment method that you have that people don't want to do that because it's not fun. And I think to a certain degree, they perceive that the force on force of training is you're going to put me in situations where I'm destined to fail that are impossible. And I already know I'm going to do badly. So why should I spend money to go to the class and do badly in something I know I'm already going to fail at? The other side of that is good old Dunning-Kruger, which is, well, I'm sure I'll do fine and I'll make all the right decisions under stress, even though I've never actually done anything like that before ever in my life. <laughs> and you know, thankfully now with the advent of video, there's a, you know active self-protection and other channels where you can, you can go online and you can watch what people actually do in those situations. And some of them do okay, and some of them do very badly. Right. And the, the problem with the consequences of doing things very badly is, you know, the morgue, the hospital, the jail, the courtroom. Right. It's um, people don't want to think of themselves as failing. And so one way to protect the ego, William April called it denial in defense of the ego. And the easiest way to embrace that is to avoid being tested. Mm -hmm. right? And so, uh, you know, like in the book, we talk about you got to hide the medicine and the candy. And so you have to make force on force training a little more fun and you have to make it have more curve appeal for, Hey, you know, let's practice these things. One of the things that I've found that, that adds to the curve appeal of force on force for a certain subcategory of students is, would you like to rob a Seven Eleven, Right. And so I let students for some scenarios be the role player. And that surprisingly has appealed to people. It's like, well, how would you like to carjack someone? How would you like to be the 7-Eleven robber? And they're like, oh, really? I can do that? Well, yes, if you come to class, you know, you'll be a robber in this scenario and you're the unarmed clerk in this scenario and you're the guy with nothing getting the Slurpee in one scenario and you're you with a gun in another scenario. And that seems to have more appeal than we're just going to put you in and all of the, you know, grandmaster SWAT team level guys, we're going to be the bad guys and we're just going to, you know, shoot you up for to entertain ourselves. Well, and I think that that also serves an, an amazingly useful sort of educational experience as well. Whereas if you put a student in the mindset of like, all right, now rob the 7-Eleven, what you're getting them to do is think about 
you know, how would I do that? And exactly. And that, that leads to, wait, how would someone else do that? What would make this harder? If this were my goal, what would make this easier? And that's oddly enough, one of the ways that I've started teaching deselection, um, you know, the, the whole idea of, you know, how, how do, how should I behave to not be selected for violence by a criminal? And, and what I tell people, and it's, it's sort of, it sounds weird, but I think it's an amazingly useful, you know, the next time you're out in public, um, just look around at you. And if for whatever reason you decided you were going to be a criminal, I want you to pick the person in your environment that you would choose to victimize. Okay. Now that you've done that, think about why did you make that choice and then don't do those things. Yes, absolutely. What I have found is that students that are good at being bad guys that are effective and skilled at it are also good at being good guys. Yep. And the people that sort of flail, uh, here's one without giving away too much about the class. Um, one thing that we do is I'll send someone in and I'll say, hang out near the bathroom in the 7-Eleven and we'll put the ATM somewhere near the bathroom, the little machine where people get money and act like you're waiting to use the bathroom, even though there's nobody in the bathroom and you could go in anytime you wanted. But then you wait for someone to go to the ATM to get cash for pay for gas or whatever they're paying for. And then you slip up behind them and your goal is to rob them without yelling at them. You slip up right in their ear and you, you know, poke your gun muzzle in their ribs or your knife or just poke your finger in their ribs and basically tell them, you know, give me the money. Don't say anything to anybody. If you say anything to the clerk on your way out, I'm going to come out there and shoot you in the head. Yeah. Right. And their job is to, within the scenario, rob as many people as they can and or when they think they've robbed enough to stroll out of the store and even buy something on their way out and look as innocent as possible. Mm -hmm. And some students excel at this and other students are picked off and noticed right now. What I do in that is some of the role players are sacrificial. Some of them, I tell them, don't be clueless. I'm sorry. Don't be, don't be clueful. Don't be looking around. I want you to go in, look at the ground, be distracted on your phone. Don't pay attention to anybody that's too close, right? Because the robber needs, if everybody's all switched on and all, you know, head on a swivel and all that, then of course the scenario doesn't work. So you have to at least introduce a few people in there that are unarmed, defenseless, easy prey. But often the armed person will let their guard down and they don't think about it and they'll, they'll get robbed too. Yeah. And so it's a fun scenario because everybody has a story to tell when it's all over with. And like, well, I know I told you not to pay attention, but what did you see? If you'd been you, what did you see that bothered you? You know, and so everybody gets to pay attention, even if they don't get to act on it. And uh, that's always a fun, that's always a fun scenario, just because I never know exactly how it's going to turn out, how many people are going to get robbed or what's going to happen. Sometimes the guy will, the robbery or the lady, whoever it is, will uh, be halfway in the middle of the 7-Eleven and all of a sudden they're one of their victims will draw their gun and you know, confront them. Mm-hmm. And that's, that provides no end of entertainment. And then we get to have the discussion about the necessity of doing that. What were you thinking? Right. Well, and that's actually going to sort of segue nicely into the last segment, which we are 
about to get to, but we do have to take a break. Uh, right now, we're talking with Carl Wren from KR Training. You're listening to Ballistic Radio. Welcome back to Ballistic Radio, brought to you by Big Tech's Ordinance, where every customer is a friend, not just an order. Visit them online at BigTechsOrdinance.com. So we're talking with Carl Wren from KR Training about force on force and just sort of having a nice little meandering discussion about it, which I, are my favorite kinds of discussions. And you said something there that uh, at at the end of the last segment that I think is rather, frankly, my favorite part of any force on force that I've had the privilege of either participating in or just observing. And you're never really sure what's going to happen. So my question for you, is there stuff that you see a lot of that's kind of like, or that's like, yeah, that's great. And is there anything really odd that crops up sometimes? The number one thing that I tell people that don't do this, but you're going to do it because you can't stop yourself. And that is closing distance with someone that you've decided to point your gun at or do something to that. It's a proxemics. You know, if you want to chew somebody out, you get right in their face, you get that finger up there. Uh, that the criminals will do that to get closer, to be more intimidating when they rob. But the thing I have to remind people is, you know, cover works. You don't need to leave cover and step out to the middle of the 7-Eleven. If you're going to confront the person that robbed you at the ATM, then you still need cover. And, you know, you're, you should be talking to them over your gun sights pretty much, as opposed to jumping out in the open and getting closer to them. that's the most common thing that I see and it's human nature. And I explain to people say, we're not wired to use guns. We're wired to use rocks and sticks, you know? And so our instinct is no different from the dog chasing the rabbit that if you, if you're functioning at that lizard brain level, then you're more likely to to do those things as opposed to uh, using the higher level conscious functions and realizing, wait, I have shooting skill. I can use cover and I don't need to jump out in the open because I can take the eight yard shot as opposed to the three yard shot. When I really don't think people understand, you know, we have, you know, we were pursuit predators. Um, So there's 200,000 years of biology at play where, what did we used to do? We used to run things into the ground until they got tired. Then like you said, We'd hit them over the head with a rock or poke them with a stick. And yeah, there's there's a piece. There's still a piece of us that uh, very much likes to close distance there. Is have you. Is there a time frame that you've noted uh, as far as like amount of training or what have you that sort of gets people out of that? Or is that just sort of a constant? um struggle at the beginning the more scenarios they're in the more variety of scenarios that they see they learn they build up that rolodex in their mind of of what i'm going to pull up as you know what's the response to this the stimulus and so in four hours i can produce a change in people if an eight hour or 16 hour session uh, most people get over most of their glitchiness and it becomes no longer novel it's the whole thing oh i've seen this before and i hear that back from students that had incidents in the real world like oh this is just like that scenario that you did 
And so I, I, I've had students that walked out of a Burger King, for example, middle of August, a couple of kids come in wearing trench coats like they're auditioning for a Columbine documentary. And uh, a couple of the folks that teach with me, actually, one of my, a couple of my longtime assistants, uh, they, they see that and uh, the, the, the wife tells the husband, we're leaving now. And the husband being a good husband says, yes, dear. And they gather up their food, get in the car and take off. Yeah. And he didn't see what she saw because of where he was sitting and they, they're driving off. And he's like, what did you see? And she described what she saw and says, it looked like one of our scenarios. It looked like they were about to rob the place. It just looked too familiar. And I didn't want to stay to find out. And granted, they were both carrying, both mm-hmm. had plenty of skill, but they had no interest in protecting the Burger King. And sure enough, they got home that night. And on the 10 o'clock news was two youths armed robbery at Burger King. Yeah. And they they were literally if they had sat there and thought about it and debated, should we go? Should we not go? They might have been there when it started. But the fact they saw it and they said, eh, we can eat in the car, grab the stuff, head out. And there will be people say, well, they should have used their skills and stayed and protected all those people. Well, no, not the not in my mindset. Uh, not work, not employed by Burger King, not cops, not required to do that. And uh, every other adult that was there in the Burger King had the same option they did to have a carry permit, choose to be armed. And so uh, I think, you know, I, I view that as a win. I'm very proud of the fact that they saw that and got out of there instead of having the desire to stick around just to, to get in on it. You know, yeah. Uh, one of the things I do in my scenarios is students that bail out students that gracefully exit and find a way to not use any force at all they are praised right it's not disappointing if every scenario shouldn't end in a gunfight no and i've heard that criticism of at least one other person that does force on force as part of their program that every scenario ends in a gunfight that's good if the purpose of the training is to give people that gunfighting experience it's not good if you're training them to make good use of force decisions so you got to decide what's your learning objective right? right that it's uh that if every, you know, every scenario is going to go to shooting, that's okay. But it's kind of like shooting a USPSA match. It's like, well, what's my goal? Well, I draw my gun and I shoot every target that I see. Well, that's, it's not really tactical shooting. Oh, and it's okay to muzzle all the no shoots in the, in the USPSA and IDPA world. And I actually try to enforce the no muzzling, no shoot rule. Thank you, Daryl Bolke for uh, setting me straight on that. And so now we're much more brutal on students about okay you got your gun out who's it pointed at right now well or should you be pointing it at them in the real world we had a student in an incident many years ago get in trouble for aggravated assault for pointing his gun at someone that he shouldn't have in a situation so that stuff is real and we know that people that do that can get in big trouble for it right um so that's a common thing that you see as far as people closing distance when it wouldn't be advantageous to do so um is there any really odd thing that crops up every once in a while that you're kind of like, huh? Uh, and I figure we can talk about that for a couple of minutes and then we'll be at the end of the show. Um, I'll tell you my all-time favorite force on force story, which I had no control over other than it was a 7-Eleven scenario. And rather than make it, you know, tell people, well, you're a poo and get into all of that sort of stereotypy thing i made it realistic i said well you're in east austin and the the commonly spoken language there is spanish and i had one student that spoke spanish uh, fluently or only one that admitted it early on and he said well i'll be the clerk so uh, 
I put this guy on the Gork station and everyone that comes up, he only speaks to them in Spanish. What I didn't know, and I should have had a better feel for this, is you can't be in Texas more than a week without picking up a few words of Spanish. Mm -hmm. And literally all of the dialogue in that scenario occurred in Spanish with people trying to ask directions or trying to make change or arguing over the price of milk. Um, everyone, everyone in the scenario, the whole thing was in Spanish until I yelled cut. And I'm just sitting there watching. Wow, this is this is really cool because I did not plan this to happen this way. But people adapted to the fact that he was talking to them in Spanish and they all did their best to work within that framework. And I thought that was that was extremely awesome, because in addition to now trying to do all the other things, now that you're trying to communicate in a second language, for many of them, you could tell they were struggling. It was their high school Spanish, you know, coming out, trying to figure out how to ask where the bathroom was in Spanish. But everybody, once it was a, a kind of a groupthink thing, once it started, nobody wanted to break it. Nobody wanted to be the first one to speak in English. So they all just did their best. And uh, I really enjoyed that one. I have to admit, running the scenario, sometimes it's more fun for me than it is for the students just because of things like that. Well, and I think that for instructors, especially, you know, there's so much to be learned about, well, everything when you're given the opportunity to just watch people trying to interact inside of, you know, that environment with, with those problem sets. And, you know, as, as you sort of pointed out, like adding just like some actual task complexity and not, not artificial task complexity. We're like, all right, fine. I'm going to make this more complicated, but this doesn't happen. But what you're describing, like, that's a very, very real world thing that someone might have to, you know, interact. I live in central Texas. There are neighborhoods where all the billboards are in Spanish. All the signs are in Spanish. I have a next door neighbor in the house I live in, in Bryan, and Spanish is his first language. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's out there. It's it's part of life here and increasingly so with the border and the more people coming across and uh, more people, more people here speaking Spanish. So it's, you know, that's not a fake thing. It's uh, every day, depending on what neighborhood and where you're at. Right. Um, so we're at the end of the show. Uh, so what I would ask you is first what you would leave people with. So you and it can be about force on force or really anything else if if there's something that is uh on your mind and then where people can find out more about you, what you do and how, uh, how to take a class with you or spend their time with you. Well, the, the easy answer, which is timely question. I'll be in Memphis at the end of August doing a force on force instructor class, which will be a Saturday class. And then Sunday we'll run scenarios. So uh, people can learn how to script scenarios, learn how to be role players. And then I put them to work. And we're going to run scenarios on a Sunday, doing the same thing at my home range in near Austin, Texas in September. It'll be a three day evolution with force on force instructor and then scenarios on Saturday and Sunday. The Saturday scenarios, Caleb Causey from One Star Medics is going to come. And the second half of the day is not only going to be force on force options, but after the shooting, you may have injuries. Caleb's going to be, well, you're shot in the arm. What are you going to do about that? Well, who's got a tourniquet in the pocket? You don't. OK, what do we got? Right. And then Sunday, Dave Rychek, who helps Craig Douglas with the role player 
job there at the experiential learning lab at TechCon, Dave and I are going to run some scenarios where we got the red, red man gear and, you know, we'll be able to punch and grapple and do an ECQC-like scenario, but with more dialogue and more plot where not every scenario was going to end in a grapple fight on the ground, but some of them might. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, it's kind of an integration of that sort of thing. Um, also got a similar thing coming up in Baton Rouge in January in their two story indoor shoot house at the FRC range in Baton Rouge. And I'm super excited about that. And I'll be back in Culpeper, Virginia in June of next year doing the same thing. And hopefully a few other places if the people want me to come out and do that. But I've got more force on force classes coming up than I normally do. Force on force classes are 20 times harder to fill than live fire classes. And so that's the thing that I leave you with is that those of us that do force on force training, you know, if you like training, come on out and support us because it's a lot of cost, a lot of effort to have all the equipment, particularly if you have gear for like 10 people, like I do, that uh, it's the sort of thing that if you don't support it, it'll go away because it won't be fiscally viable. And there's only a handful of us, maybe half a dozen in the country that offer this sort of thing on any regular basis at all. And if it's not part of your training plan, if all you have in your training plan is I need another carbine course, right? Or I'm going to take ECQC for the 18th time. Well, ECQC is great. Carbine courses are great, but you might need scenario training to go with it. And so I would say, you know, maybe look, broaden your perspective and look for some classes that are more uh, different than what you've had before. Yeah. Um, Cool, Carl. I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, very, very, very much love getting the opportunity to talk with you, uh, get your perspective on stuff. Uh, your website, if people wanted to pop by that, what would that be? krtraining.com or blog.krtraining.com, which is where I post interesting articles, newsletters, what have I been doing lately, videos from classes, all that. Facebook, KR Training on Facebook. And so uh, Instagram, I don't do a lot of Twitter. I don't do TikTok, but we're, we're pretty busy on Facebook and Instagram. John Dobb, one of my assistant instructors, posts on YouTube. He's got a YouTube channel that's very active. So we're, we do our best to put a lot of content out there and uh, encourage people to keep up with what we're doing because we've always got something. Awesome. Hey, thanks so much for your time, Carl. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation. Happy to come do this. Yeah, no worries. All right, guys, make sure you check out our website. BallisticRadio.com, like our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash BallisticRadio. And hey, if you think we've earned it, please keep leaving those five-star reviews on iTunes. It really helps us out and helps new people find the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, be safe and see you next week. Don't drop.